Hey there, and welcome to the Pseudo Show, brought to you by the Destination Linux Network. Join Brandon and I as we chat with Chris Saltis, the CEO and co-founder of Mist.io. We talk about the Mist multi-cloud manager, cloud native, and how to balance your cloud dependencies. All that and more on the Pseudo Show. Welcome to the Pseudo Show, your home for all things enterprise open source. I'm Eric, the IT guy, and I'm so excited you're joining us. You may remember back in episode five, Brandon and I reviewed some of the most popular cloud management tools. One of those tools was Mist.io. From that episode, Brandon released a YouTube video on how to use Mist to deploy digital ocean resources. We actually reached out to Mist and started talking with their CEO and co-founder, Chris Saltis. What follows is a conversation we had with him. Speaking of DigitalOcean, we are very proud to call them a sponsor of the Pseudo Show. Head on over to do.co slash dln for $100 credit. DigitalOcean offers the simplest, most developer-friendly cloud platform. And wow, has DigitalOcean been doubling down on their app platform. The DigitalOcean app platform is a modern platform as a service that makes it incredibly easy to build, deploy, manage, and scale your apps. Every few weeks, there's a new feature announced. Just a couple of weeks ago, DigitalOcean announced that you can now deploy code from your GitLab.com repositories right into the managed app platform. All you have to do is point your project to your GitLab repo, pick a region, select a pricing plan, and go. Now you can publish code from GitHub, GitLab, and soon, Bitbucket. Check out the DigitalOcean app platform today by going to do.co slash dln. As a listener of the Pseudo Show, you can get your own $100 credit to get started with all these amazing features. Thank you to DigitalOcean for being a sponsor of the Pseudo Show and the entire Destination Linux network. Today, I'm very excited to introduce Chris Saltis, CEO and co-founder of Mist. Welcome to the show, Chris. Thank you. Glad to be here. So, Chris, you and I started a dialogue shortly after I announced the uh, Mist uh, video. One of the things that, that stood out to Eric and I was how passionate you are about this technology and, and this space uh, around hybrid cloud and cloud management. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you found your way into this part of the industry? Oh, yeah, it's a, <laughs> it's a long history. Like I try to, to make it short. I, I don't have a software engineering background. Uh, my background is in uh, computer vision and machine learning. Uh, so I started from uh, uh, being a researcher where I was, uh, you know, de developing algorithms for uh, different uh, projects here and there. Uh, at some point, an, an old friend find, found me and said, look, we're, we're preparing this company with a couple of other people. How about you join us? Uh, we will be doing consulting uh, mostly on open source software. And uh, that's how my career in software engineering started. Uh, so uh, we, we started this company. We were uh, doing uh, consulting, uh, meaning pretty much end-to-end -end services from you know, developing stuff uh, or customizing things, maintaining them, training people, uh, all that. And uh, we focused 100% on open source. You know, we were running infrastructure and uh, web applications for customers around the world. We were a small team. We had servers uh, running on AWS, on uh, Colo, on bare metals. Uh, we started building this internal tool that was about helping us manage our infrastructure better. And uh, that's uh, how Mist uh, was, uh, was born, practically. Uh, it was an internal tool. Uh, but then, you know, at some point we said, 
look, if we if we need that and we uh, find it useful, maybe other people out there will find it useful as well. We uh, started focusing more on the MIST product, let's say. In 2013, we went through an accelerator. Uh, Mozilla was running an accelerator back then out of the Mountain View office. So we traveled to Mountain View. We, we've spent... Uh, like uh, several months there, and practically the the second day we were in Mountain View, we you know we decided like this is it. We're uh, we're stopping the consulting business. We will be focusing uh, entirely uh, to uh, Mist.io, and that's uh, that's a, a brief story. That's awesome. What was the that moment that you're like, okay, this is the gap we're going to solve like what was the gap you were trying to solve with mist like that in open in the open source land for cloud management tools there's very few tools like there's mist there's manage iq and maybe one or two others uh in the proprietary land i'm stumbling over them and they're you know what was the gap that that you that you guys saw yeah, first of, first of all, as you said, you know the uh, the open source world uh, didn't have uh, many options. It was practically uh, manage IQ or nothing. You know, manage IQ is a good solution, but it's rather complicated and hard to work with. It can be very powerful uh, when uh, you've spent like a lot of time uh, working with it, uh, but it's uh, hard to get going out of the box and. You know, inherently, it has some premium support, let's say, for Red Hat uh, platforms and Red Hat tooling and all that. It's not uh, objective, let's say, into uh, what it supports. So we wanted something that was, you know, super simple to get started with, but also from a day two perspective. Uh, again, you, you can imagine that we were a small team. We, we couldn't uh, spend a lot of time on that. We couldn't uh, uh, get a... A set of certifications just to get started. So uh, we wanted to bring this uh, user friendliness to our end users, uh, but also keep it as wide uh, open as possible, so it can be easily extended and it can support like a wide range of uh, technologies without having some even indirect relation to a major vendor. And uh, yeah, that's, uh, that, that, was the, that was the idea. And we're practically still there. I mean, uh, this philosophy hasn't changed much uh, since the early days. That's really amazing. And some, some of the best tools on the market, especially in the open source space, seem to come from someone finding a need that they have in their own business, whether it's consulting or, or whether they work full time at another company and go, wow, it wouldn't it be nice if we had this thing. And it's just it's awesome to hear a story of someone who said, wow, it would it'd be nice to have this thing to make that thing and then to push it out in, into into the public to, for people to use. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's like uh, you are uh, the first user, right? Yeah. If, it, if it doesn't work for you, why, why invest the time and effort uh, to build it? And then on the other, on the other hand, if it works for you, chances are it will work for for others as well. Right, exactly. So you you were in the uh, Mozilla Accelerator program when you decided that Mist was was the future. So how did what what were kind of those next days like? What was it like going from being a consulting company <laughs> to being a software engineer, basically? Uh, it was it was a roller coaster, <laughs> practically. <laughs> like, uh, so I, I, as I said, like in uh, in day two, we decided that this is what we are going to do. Then around day four, 
we started getting some uh, feedback from uh, people in the space, potential investors and others like, oh, you know, why do multi-cloud? Who, who will ever do multi-cloud? Today, everybody's on a data center or something like that. And tomorrow they will be on Amazon, on AWS. And that's it, period. Uh, who would like to run more than uh, two clouds at the same time? You know, uh, and and we went through this uh, situation uh, several several times. <laughs> uh, nowadays, uh, it's uh, much more clear that multi-cloud is everywhere. Practically, <laughs> it it was everywhere even back uh, in those days, uh, but people weren't exactly recognizing it they weren't exactly accepting it uh, now this has become much uh, much more clear you know having organizations adopting multiple platforms at the same time is pretty much uh, the norm mm-hmm. and uh, that doesn't have to be like a, a big strategic decision coming from the c-suite or anything like that it just happens and uh, you know it's better to manage it rather than try to avoid it <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it, exactly. It, like, because, you know, the large enterprises say sometimes uh, the right hand doesn't know what the left hand is doing. Because, and it's like the business could go to Azure and go pick, grab and go deploy a bunch of VMs, whereas IT is all but standardized on like some sort of internal private cloud or, or AWS. And then they discover, oh, there's like, $20,000 a month going on here in Azure and uh, we need to start getting that cost under control. And yeah. And it's the fact is, is it, that's, that's what happens. <laughs> it, it happens. It happens for a reason. It's not like uh, there is like this term called uh, Sado YT. Yeah. I think it's a very negative uh, way to approach it. Uh, I mean, the, the people you mentioned who started an account on Azure, they did it for some reason. Mm-hmm. Uh, they uh, they didn't go to the company approved, let's say, uh, platform for some reason. Mm-hmm. Maybe they were more familiar and more productive with Azure. Maybe they don't like the internal platform at all, or it cannot do what they are looking for. So these things happen, and you know, in, instead of trying to stop people to uh, do their uh, job more efficiently. You just have to empower them uh, to uh, use whatever they're feeling more comfortable with. Because, you know, in the end of the day, businesses and technologies are running with people and for people. You you should take into account the human factor. Mm -hmm. Well, and as technology has changed, so has culture. You you talk about shadow IT. And I, I remember a few years ago being in IT operations and realizing that, wait, my, my team is part of the problem here. The reason why we have people using AWS and GCP instead of going through our internal process is if I had to request a server through the internal process, I'd be I'd be furious because it takes three days to get approvals. It takes three days to get the VM provisioned. It takes a week to get the database team to install the database. I mean, it's just, the list goes on and on. And then, then, of course, security is always the last to know. So then the VM has to go over to security to get scanned. And by the time you're all said and done, you may have a development server that you wanted to test out an idea on and it's taking you six weeks just to get the login yeah exactly or i can just take my company card and i can go out to aws spin up a couple of ec2 clusters spin them down and i've spent 
two hours tr- testing out this idea and, you know, six bucks. But you multiply that by 500 people, all of a sudden you've got a major financial problem. So operations really needs to just reposition themselves as an enabler of development as as opposed to the kind of the keeper of the keys. Exactly. That's uh, that's very spot on, and uh, we uh, we see it happening on daily basis. I mean, it's 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 a very very common situation. So, Chris, Mist is mostly open source, and it's an open core. Is the um, the project uh, open to outside contributions? Uh, like, what does that look like? Yeah, 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 for sure. And uh, we also have some of our uh, customers uh, contributing code from uh, time to time. Uh, We do follow an open core model. You know, the vast majority of the functionality is available under an Apache license. What we keep on the commercial side of things is uh, practically a few things, mostly related, let's say, to enterprise features like uh, role-based access controls, uh, authentication with LDAP, Active Directory, things like that, uh, where practically it means that, you know, if if you need those features, you're using MIST for some serious business. And even if those were uh, not like uh, absolutely necessary, you would certainly need some level of support, maintenance and all that. Uh, so uh, that's how we uh, segment, let's say, the, the product. Uh, in fact, there are three versions of MIST. There is uh, MIST as a service, you just uh, create an account, you log in, and that's it. Then we also have the Enterprise Edition, which is hosted on-prem. It's the commercial version. And then you also have the Community Edition, uh, which you can just grab from GitHub and use it right away. And that's definitely a growing model. And and it seems to be pretty successful because, I mean, at the end of the day, you want to focus all your time and energy on developing this product, but you kind of have to pay the bills. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, that's a tough one. Uh, it, it's hard to figure out what's the best uh, solution, let's say, or the best alternative in how you monetize open source. And it greatly depends on the project. So we're uh, continuously iterating on that. And we're, uh, we have changed things along the way. I don't know if we will change anything more uh, in the near future, but yeah, it's uh, it's tough to uh, be successful and find the right recipe for uh, your your open source uh, platform product or service or whatever. Well, I've been uh, you know using Mist uh, in my home lab to manage uh, DigitalOcean and AWS and a few few other cloud providers. I think when we were prepping for this, you teased uh, that you'll be doing a new release. Like, what, what what's uh, the new? What, what does that look like? What new features are coming down down the pipe for Mist? Yeah. Okay. So the the next release uh, will be version four point four. Uh, this is not a major release. Uh, we will be doing some uh, iterative, let's say, enhancements and bug fixes from here and there. Uh, we will improving uh, the support for a couple of clouds, uh, mostly uh, Linode, Equinix Metal, and a couple of others. Uh, so we expect small changes from uh, here and there because right after four. 4.4, we will be going directly to a major new, new release, uh, version 5, which will uh, bring a lot of changes, especially on the API level. So we will be revising pretty much totally our API. We, we are talking for a brand new API version. 
uh, when we first designed uh, the API, you know, things were much different. Uh, so this uh, this is an overhaul that was uh, in the works for uh, some time. And together with the brand new API, we will be releasing a new CLI. The first version of the CLI will be available in version 4.4, so keep an eye uh, out for it. But in version 5, it will have like the full functionality. Everything you can do from uh, Miss Web Interface, you will be able to do from the command line. It's a really nice and powerful interface. Uh, similar to what you would expect, let's say, from kubectl or something like that. That's awesome. I'm very much looking forward to seeing that. Um, yeah, so- I know you have, that you're a big CLI fan, so uh, that's why I'm bringing it up. <laughs> uh, it sounds like uh, I'll be doing a new video soon. <laughs> uh, yeah. You can do it like black and white, just the sale. <laughs> uh, 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 maybe I'll make it green. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so switching gears just a little bit, while we were prepping for this episode, you also teased a, uh, a series of blog posts that uh, that you have in the works centered around this concept of making informed decisions about cloud technologies. I know for, I know for sure that our, our audience comprises security engineers, systems administrators, developers, IT leadership, and, and this is something that faces a lot of our audience every single day. What, what clouds should we should we sign up for? What How deep should we get into their services? It's, it's so easy to just go out, believe the hype, sign up for a, a cloud platform because that's the quote go-to, even though it, it may not be right for your company's needs. So this I think this blog series will be really helpful for a lot of our audience. And if I'm not mistaken, your first one is, is due out just about any day now. You mentioned the first one was this open versus closed clouds. You, you want to kind of share the overview of that blog post? Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. The market currently, is, as you as you brought up, uh, suffers from an, uh, fr- from hype, let's say. This is partially triggered by uh, the major vendors, uh, but also it is fueled by other vendors in the space together with uh, a mild level of ignorance, let's say, from, uh, from some people. We see a lot lately the, the concept of open clouds being uh, pitched as an alternative to closed clouds. I don't really know what those terms mean, to be honest. Uh, it's more of a marketing and sales construct uh, from uh, some cloud providers to differentiate themselves from their uh, competition. And because I believe it, it it creates a lot of confusion from the user side, we try to dig deeper and deconstruct the whole idea of an open cloud and try to uh, explain what this is really and what should the users be careful about and what they should consider before they go all in somewhere or they uh, adopt like a specific uh, solution from a cloud provider. So one of the things we've heard you say a number of times is is this open versus closed discussion and, and how important that is when, when picking a cloud provider. But you don't necessarily see that as as kind of a binary option, open or closed. You see it more as a, as a spectrum. So in, in your mind, what does that spectrum really look like? 
Yeah, yeah, it's it's certainly a spectrum. Uh, on on the on one hand, let's take a theoretical example that doesn't really exist. You have something that's totally open, and then you also have something that's totally closed. The open versus closed is practically related to the cost of uh, migrating off a specific service. Like 100% open would mean zero cost to migrate off. Uh, 100% uh, closed would mean an endless amount of money to migrate off. So those two extremes don't really exist. And they don't exist in any type of technology, right? Even if we just focus on open source, like migrating from an open source tool to another open source tool, you know, migration cost is never zero. It might be very little, but it's it's never zero. And then obviously, even on very closed and very uh, hard platforms to migrate off, you know, there's always a price tag. Uh, worst case scenario, you will rebuild it from uh, scratch. Do you want to do that? No, because it's very expensive. But theoretically, at least, it's possible. So you have to consider this uh, openness parameter in uh, the sense of, you know, uh, a slider. How much open is it uh, versus uh, how closed is it? From there on, like from being an, an open cloud or a closed cloud or a closed service or an open service, uh, you have, as the end user, I mean, you have to uh, decide uh, what's the best option for your need. Well, one of the things that people have probably heard me talk about is application portability. And like, thankfully, that's been a pretty easy thanks to Kubernetes and containers. And that, and that kind of gets us to that open cloud. But one of the big problems with going to the public cloud is data portability, getting your data out. How does that factor into, uh, <laughs> into, the, into this uh, open versus closed conversation? That's very spot on. Like, okay, so with application portability, as you as you said, I don't think it's very easy. Otherwise, everybody would be doing it right now. And like, there is like a million tools to achieve uh, application portability. Uh, I'm sure you're familiar with uh, most of them. But certainly, it is uh, part of being being open. Like. Uh, making sure that applications can be easily uh, moved here and there. This is also related with the underlying components. Uh, for example, you know, if we're talking about some sort of open source technology that's running your application, then it's much simpler than uh, some sort of uh, proprietary uh, application. Again, in the example of Kubernetes, Kubernetes is really cool because it abstracts somewhat the infrastructure layer. So you could be running Kubernetes on top of AWS or on top of Azure and never have to worry about what happens with uh, the underlying layers. You just spin up your containers here and there. But then there is somebody inside your organization who does worry about that. <laughs> How do I spin up VMs here and there? Uh, so it's, uh, it's not perfect. It's much, much better than it used to be. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, certainly, you know, the application portability, it's uh, much simpler. Then you also have like tools like Terraform, Ansible, and all the previous generations of configuration management tools. So there are several options on how you could achieve that. Mm -hmm. But the data part is uh, pretty much unsolved. <laughs> and uh, it depends on uh, how much data you have, how much you're generating, where do you want to put them? Mm -hmm. And uh, the interesting part here is that, 
you know, although most of the clouds out there are talking about how open they are, they don't charge you for ingress pricing, but they always charge you for egress pricing. Uh, for, <laughs> for ingress, uh, you know, I don't think this is very honest, right? Uh, I don't charge you anything when you move in, uh, but I do charge you when I, you move out. And depending on like how big of an amount of data you need to move, that can be, you know, from simple all the way to I'll ship my disks to AWS so they can write something there and they will ship them back or they will be bring me a truck full of data mm-hmm. <laughs> or something <laughs> crazy like that, yeah. The three main aspects I, I think to it is, as you correctly pointed out, the application th- the application part, how easy it is to move it, then the data part, how easy it is to uh, process and move and use maybe even existing open data sets. And then the third part has to do with APIs, uh, open standards and things like that, like making sure that there is a an easy way to reach both my applications as well as my data and the underlying infrastructure. So these three, I think, are the main parameters that define how open or uh, how closed a certain service is. So cloud storage isn't like like it was in the old days. When when I first started as a sysadmin, it, it, the the closest thing we had to cloud storage was offsite backups. You'd basically run all your backups on site, and then you'd copy those onto a onto a heavily protected external drive, and then a truck would come up, you know, once a day or once a week, and pick up all your disks and go stick it in a cave somewhere uh, under lock and key. I mean, back back when I started in the industry, that was that was as close to offsite or or cloud backup as we had and it's pretty much the same today weird <laughs> <laughs> right now, now i just uh now i just send it to a to a url with a with an api token or something but it's funny how that uh how that's kind of still the same problem although it was much easier then to just say hey send me the drives xyz and one two three and then i've got my data back now it's so much more difficult which which brings up a huge question something that's fiercely debated in the industry and that's that's this concept of vendor lock-in in your opinion is is that is that a risk in today's uh in today's culture or is that some is is that just a hurdle to be overcome or is that something to kind of relish in you're you're embedded in this in this ecosystem uh for better or worse you're you're there you're plugged in everything's running um, what, what's kind of your take on that? Yeah, so this is a heavily debated issue uh, for sure. And uh, it's a it's a very complicated issue. Uh, I'd say it's like a superset of the open cloud discussion. And it's, it's heavily, heavily o- overloaded. So does it exist? Yes, certainly. Uh, vendor locking exists since uh, the very beginning of time, I guess. You know, there's vendor locking everywhere from your uh, the, the mobile device you're using to uh, whatever. Like uh, it's it's in cloud for sure. Cloud is not some sort of commodity. It's not like you know I'm buying uh, grain from uh, two providers uh, at the same time to make sure that I don't run out of grain. Its cloud offering is different. So it cannot, it cannot be treated uh, as a commodity. And in that sense, there is also this event or lock-in issue that's creeping in. Then, you know, do you uh, have to be afraid of vendor locking? Do you need to do something about it? Here is where things get more complicated, I think. What I propose would be a more sane approach to the issue would be, you know, how do I manage my vendor locking? How big of a locking do I have? 
how big of a locking am I seeing in front of me by adopting service A? And am I comfortable with this level of locking or not? You know, there, there are many cases where being locked in might make sense. Uh, like you're like a small team, uh, you have this idea, you need to be up and running with a prototype in no time. Then, you know, instead of start bootstrapping database clusters and all that, uh, you can just get like a database as a service. This is a big uh, lock-in, let's say, uh uh, situation and you can also get i don't know authentication services you name it there, there are like a thousand different services you can get but then on the other hand by being so so locked in on a specific cloud platform you are out to the market in a fraction of the time that you would be otherwise but then as as your company is growing and your needs are growing, you suddenly realize that uh, 1 million queries on your database are costing you a fortune. This wasn't an issue when you were uh, running 10 queries per month, but now that you're running 1 million per minute, it's a, it's a big problem. Designing and designing your infrastructure and uh, evolving it is an iterative process. Uh, in its uh, phase of your product, pro- project lifecycle, let's say, there might be different requirements around locking. So you have to be, first of all, business focused. What is the business need I'm trying to solve? And then, you know, consider the alternatives and figure out how comfortable you're feeling with whatever level of uh, locking. Um, So, you know, instead of being afraid of it and trying to avoid it for whatever reason, you should probably think a little bit uh, better and you know, make, justify your decisions in uh, in a way that makes sense. Yeah, I agree with that. Like the like a startup, there not there's no way, especially in today's climate. Like it, it's too easy to just go to AWS, get things going, and be done. Uh, get your product out the door. That makes the VCs happy. That makes a. Uh, um, uh, other investors happy that you have your product out the door quickly, but you know the lar- you know larger organizations established. It just yeah the the hybrid approach or the multi just makes more sense, especially uh, when we're talking about like you mentioned databases, like huge data sets. Does it make sense to live there when you're when you're uh, a Fortune 500 organization? Today's call to action is brought to you by none other than Bitwarden. Bitwarden is the easiest and safest way for individuals, teams, and business organizations to store, share, and sync sensitive data. Just go to bitwarden.com slash DLN to get started today for free. With all the news lately about security breaches, we don't have to tell you the importance of having secure credentials. Bitwarden is so dedicated to their mission that they give you almost the entire product for free. However, if you want to ensure you get the best features out of your password manager, sign up for their premium plan. It only costs $10 per year and includes all kinds of great features like two-factor authentication login with YubiKey, Vault Health Reports, one-time password authenticators, and one gig of encrypted file storage. Great for storing recovery codes for your accounts. Many password managers severely limit the functionality of their applications until you pay their steep subscription costs, some of which can cost upwards of $40 a year. That's why Bitwarden is such a great deal. Get started for free by going to bitwarden.com DLN, then upgrade for just $10 a year. Thank you to Bitwarden for sponsoring the Pseudo Show and the entire Destination Linux Network. Now back to the interview. So Chris, what what would you say would be the skills that engineers and developers 
need to adopt, especially as they may, as they go through and make uh, these choices for for their organization. What what are you what are you seeing there uh, around uh, new skill sets? I can think of at least uh, three things that they they will require. First of all, they will require some uh, knowledge of their cloud provider, you know, what is possible and how can be achieved. Knowing more about other cloud providers out there would be also really helpful because we see offerings that are differentiated across providers. So in some cases, it might make sense to go with Google, for example. In some cases, it might make sense to go with Azure. In some cases, it might make sense to go with uh, AWS. Uh, so knowing what's available out there will uh, help you make more informed decisions. The other thing is know your applications and your data and uh, your architecture. Uh, how can I leverage those offerings to make my uh, application run better or uh, do something that it doesn't currently do? If you don't have this deep understanding of your own systems, you're practically uh, lost. And, and then finally, keep your mind on the business goals, what I'm trying to achieve here for my team or for my end users or for my customers, so what resources do I have available and uh, how can I use those resources in an optimal way? Like, let me give you an example here. Uh, again, with the Kubernetes story, this is an interesting one. Okay, I would like to run my application on top of Kubernetes. Do I go with the managed Kubernetes offering from, let's say, Google or do I roll out my own cluster VMs somewhere? You know, the end result for the user would be the same. They just get an endpoint and they spin up their containers there. But you know, managing a cluster is not the same as running a managed offering from uh, Google or AWS or anything uh, like that. In, in this case, you should consider, do I have the skills and time and uh, money available that could help me manage my own cluster? Or should I go with a managed solution from, uh, from a vendor? Mm -hmm. it, it's critical to know your limits, let's say. Yeah, and like I, I've had this uh, debate with other with some of my customers, like whether they should use uh, a managed the managed uh, Kubernetes services, say on AWS, at, versus using OpenShift. One of the things I immediately bring up is: Are you do you want to string all the components that you need to actually make it work? Like, there's yeah, it's the Kubernetes is managed, but what about the rest of the stuff that that actually makes it work? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, and it, it sounds like it's almost part of the growing process that you need to. You can start out using those services, but they don't scale cost-wise. So while it's nice to start out with a managed database, a managed API scheduler, all of those different things, it doesn't sound like it scales very well from a cost perspective. So maybe as, as that startup grows, as that VC funding comes in, maybe it's maybe it's a, a, a milestone approach of, well, we used a, a managed database for a while, but now we'll move that over and we'll host that ourselves on, on like an EC2 instance. It's, it's also a feature issue. It's not just a, a cost, uh, the, the, the scaling of cost. It's also like, how do I scale in terms of uh, features? And obviously, as you would expect, like the, the more customizations I might require, oh, you know, throw in this, this service mesh or throw in that thing or the other thing. This is practically impossible with a managed service. Maybe you don't need it. 
right? Or maybe you uh, discover down the road that you need it. So why try to over-optimize uh, uh, things right now instead of you know doing it when you have the maturity and the better knowledge about what you uh, what you need? Because I've seen an argument like, oh, you know, I need service mess X. Uh, which uh, doesn't work with with uh, ZKE, for example. Uh, mm-hmm. So I create my own VMs and I run uh, Kubernetes on top, my own cluster. And I manage everything myself. Okay, and you know how was your life with uh, Service Mesh Six? Oh, we we haven't we haven't installed it yet. We haven't deployed it yet. Uh, maybe like in six months from now, but I don't know yet. But like you know, you you went through all this trouble just to get Service Mesh X, but it was just some sort of like long term need that defined uh, what I'm going to do right now. So yeah, you you have to keep those things in mind. It's 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 obvious that a managed solution can be can't be as flexible as a self-hosted one. Whether you need this level of flexibility or not, I don't know. This is something that you need to answer. Uh, you need to weigh if you actually need it and if you have the skills to implement it. Chris, it's been great having on you on the show. I know Eric and I would love to have you join us again in a future episode. Maybe when Mist Five drops, we can have you back. And there you go. In the meantime, if our audience wanted to find out more of you, where should where should they go? First of all, uh, they can visit our website at uh, mist.io. They can find us in with similar usernames uh, on social media. On GitHub, our organization is mist.io. Uh, mist.io slash mistce is uh, the community version of Mist. Uh, so you can grab it from there and uh, use it. Awesome. Yeah, Mist is, Mist is a great tool, and, and it's one I highly recommend our, our, our audience uh, get involved with. We'll, we'll of course, have uh, links to Chris's uh, handles as well as Mist in the show notes. Uh, thank you so much, Chris, for joining us. It, this was a great conversation. It was great to finally talk to you, uh, uh, well, at least virtually. <laughs> well, we'll have to have you on the show again real soon. Yeah, we will probably have to wait for the in-person meeting. <laughs> unless, unless you plan to travel to Greece anytime soon. I don't know. <laughs> it's on my list. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll have to have the pseudo show world tour when, uh, when travel's uh, normal again. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that would be great, yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you all so much for joining us today. We love getting your feedback. Head on over to pseudo.show slash discuss. Each episode has its own thread for you to jump in, ask questions, and share your thoughts. If you would like more of Brandon and I, you can find it over at pseudo.show and on social media at pseudoshowpodcast. Head over to pseudo.show slash swag to grab yourself a pseudo show mug and hoodie to keep warm this winter. You can catch more awesome content over at our mothership, destinationlinux.network. Brandon, anywhere else you'd like to send folks? You can follow me on Twitter at dbrandonjohnson or my website at open-tech.net. And you can follow me at ITGuyEric or on ITGuyEric.com. Remember, the Pseudo Show is your place for all things enterprise open source. Until next time. You room, you mi- wow, got that out of my system. We're good to go. <laughs> and you can follow me at ITGuyEric or at ITGuyEric. I almost made it through the end. <laughs>